Hi, we're Josh and Arielle Wamsley, owners of Green Valley Tree LLC, based in North Wyndham. We're proud to sponsor Connecticut East this week and to serve the communities of Wyndham and New London counties with our tree removal and plant health care services. Visit our website at greenvalleytreeworks.com for a full list of our services or give us a call on 860-234-4041. We look forward to hearing from you. From Art Deco to Art Nouveau and on to the style of steampunk, we talk with Connecticut jewellery designer Anne Pedro about her amazing work, her new exhibition at Yukon, and where she gets her inspiration from. Plus, we take a look at other stories making the headlines from around the region. This is Connecticut East This Week. Hello, I'm Brian Scott-Smith. We like to highlight the work and talent of local people here on the podcast, and this week's episode is no exception. Anne Pedro is a Connecticut jewellery designer with a distinct style all her own. Her jewellery designs are bold statement pieces that have their own story, but also their own history too, in the way they are made with items from the present and the past. She has a new exhibition at the Homer Babbage Library at Yukon Stores campus until December 11th. I sat down with Anne recently to talk about her work and the various designers and design styles that have influenced her and continue to make their mark on her unique creations. Anne, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me on, Brian. So, an exciting chat. You have got some most amazing and gorgeous jewellery. We are going to be talking about that. And if people want to see it, and we'll give the details out at the end of the interview, they can actually come to the Homer Babbage Library at Yukon in stores. And that's on until December the 11th. Again, we'll give the full details, but it's called Elements of Time Lost and Found. Before we talk specifically about that, tell us a little bit about Anne Pedro, the jewellery designer. What got you into it? Well, I originally took my first class in jewelry making in high school. We were fortunate enough at the time we had a full art program at Wyndham High School. That's where I went. And they had a tremendous selection of all kinds of art classes, whether it was painting, drawing, clay. And I really took advantage of the full art program. I took a wide variety in my four years there. And uh, one day I stayed after school and I was able to make a small little brass ring. I still have it. And then the next semester, I remember signing up for the Introduction to Jewelry course And I just went from there. I also did independent study because I did so well in the classes. You were allowed to do an independent study class. So I was allowed to do that for a couple years. And it's it's been wonderful ever since. I I really find that metal is my medium where other people may want to go into clay or fiber painting. I really enjoyed working with, with metal and gemstones. Yeah, they really are statement pieces. Like I said, we're going to be talking much more about these beautiful pieces of jewellery in the interview. Was there any influences in your family as well? Because often sometimes we're influenced by members of our family. So were there any sort of like, you know, real creatives in your family, which were sort of people who were influencers, as it were, that got you into, as I say, this, this creative streak? On my mother's side, 
side, my aunt, her sister, she has always been very creative and her medium is clay. My father really could draw very well. It wasn't something that he did quite often, but if he had to do a little sketch of something, he was very good at that, but that wasn't his profession. So let's talk about the jewellery because, as I say, it is absolutely stunning. I mean, they are pieces to behold. I mean, they are true statement pieces. Um, You certainly cannot miss them at all. You say that your colour palette is what you term as industrial colour. So tell us about that because you deal with metal. I do. And it's not, my jewelry isn't the typical jewelry you would see when you go into your local jewelry store or even a jewelry store in a big city. They're all one of a kind. And the term industrial colors that I coined really has to do with the brushed metals I use, the brass, copper, occasionally bronze. And if you really study my work, you will see that it does look like machinery. A lot of it does look like pieces of antique machinery. And there are some pieces that I used from um, old clocks music boxes. So what did they use at the time, these vintage pieces? They used solid brass. And it's a shame because now, of course, everything is plastic. When you go to buy something, a beautiful clock, even when you open it up, there may be some metal pieces, but a lot of it is plastic. So I like to really use things that are vintage And I have to go quite a few different places to find the pieces to get the colors that I want. Nothing is altered. If I find something in a a state that I like, if I find a piece of copper that may have a little tarnish to it, I kind of like to keep that little bit of tarnish. I clean the pieces up, of course, but they aren't highly polished pieces like you would find at a a local jewelry store. They aren't platinum or gold. I want that vintage look. So you've got uh, a lot of influences in your art. So we're going to talk a little bit about them because they're quite interesting influences. And I'm going to say that without, you know, I don't mean to be rude in any way. They're very different types of influences. We're going to start off Art Deco, of course, uh, pre-World War One huge obviously design influence for many many people but it's known for it's like its curves and its symmetry and things like that and then you've also got one of your influences is Art Nouveau which of course was the next stage which was much more angular it was a very different type of look post-World War One and then we get into steampunk Talk us through those three, because they're three very, very different styles. But they're, you know, just like your jewellery, they're unique. Once you see them, you know exactly that it's that time period. Exactly. Well, some of the pieces you'll actually see all three styles in one. At least I see it. And hopefully the viewers who have come to the show, to the gallery space, they will see if they have some art background or if they are a lover of one of the particular styles, either Art Nouveau, Art Deco, or Steampunk, they will really be able to recognize it in my pieces. Some are definitely more steampunk, the mechanical looking. It looks like engines and and things like that. Others are Art Deco. You have that very sleek look. There's a lot of geometrics going on. There's a lot of angles. And then there is one piece in the exhibition that I'm thinking of right now. It's called Paris 1900. 
And that one is definitely Art Nouveau. That was a piece that I came up with for an art competition. I did not win the competition, unfortunately, but it's got the very beautiful curves and the flowing lines and there's uh, floral imagery. There's a little lily pad. There's a miniature Eiffel Tower. So really to reflect the area of the era of Belle Epoque that was in Paris the turn of the last century around 1900. So there's something in the show, I feel, for everyone. And like I said, steampunk, I mean, that is, again, a very specific type of style. I mean, it's also a subgenre of science fiction as well. Correct. But it's very sort of Victorian industrial. Mm -hmm. So, again, you know, what what drew you to that? Because, you know, looking at these pieces and you're, you're, you're handing a few that you're putting together now, I mean, again, gorgeous pieces, and you can see that industrial. So what got you into the steampunk? Because that is very, very different to Art Nouveau and Art Deco. Absolutely. I was in a bookstore in New York City one year. This was probably 15 to 18 years ago. And whenever I go into a beautiful bookstore in New York, I always gravitate towards the art section, of course. And there was a book there about steampunk jewelry. And I thought, what is what is this steampunk jewelry? And I looked at it and I actually bought the book. I thought, oh, I can do this, but I can even do this better. I had a certain mindset of what I can do to improve the designs that I saw in the book. So that's kind of how it all started. And I just I just went from there. It was just something that I was really drawn to. It kind of surprised myself because in the past, I had worked in uh, precious metals and sterling silver and gemstones. And I like the idea of recycling the past And that's what I feel I'm doing with these pieces. I'm taking pieces maybe that weren't originally designed or made to be a jewelry piece, and I just have recreated it into jewelry. So I like that idea, and I also like thinking about especially the pieces that I use with clocks or pieces from old pocket watches. I like to think about who used these originally mm. as their pocket watches, who owned them, and what journeys they might have, ta- you know, have taken. And uh, when I take the pieces apart, I do like to think about that. And it's really kind of like a history lesson, too. Absolutely. Now, another one of your influences was the American architect Frank Lloyd Wright. And for those who may not have heard of him, he is very famous for many, many buildings. His style as well, I believe, is something called prairie style, which, again, is a very different style to everything that we're talking about here. But, I mean, he is well known for things like the Guggenheim Museum, which is probably one of his most famous buildings, which, again, is a statement piece. Why why Frank Lloyd Wright? What was it about him that sort of like interested you as well? Again, I see my work, especially I'm doing something right now called micro mosaics. And they aren't the micro mosaics that you typically see that were done, I believe, in the late 1800s, where people would journey to Rome, and they would actually take souvenirs back home that were miniature scenes all done in incredible glass. Um, Sometimes they used uh, gemstones as well and they would cut the glass into this very, very minute sizes and shapes and they would make a beautiful souvenir to take home that was usually in jewelry. And so what I wanted to say about the the micro mosaics was that 
If you look at some of Frank Wright's pieces, he did some very interesting geometric pieces. Again, he used the colors of the, the land as far as the russets and the browns and coppers and things like that. And I really saw my work being influenced by his work. I'm not trying to copy his style, but I kind of mixed his work with my steampunk pieces. And so that was, that was my influence with him. Yeah, I mean, I say some great buildings. I can see, you know, as you're discussing it, talking about the colours. I mean, like these brass and copper tonal mm-hmm. qualities. I mean, like Falling Water, which was one of his buildings. That's one of my favourite, favourite classic, classic buildings. It exact, masterpiece. Exactly what you were just saying about the colours and the mm-hmm. use of, obviously, you mm-hmm. know, the natural colours there. Talk to us a little bit about, um, unfortunately, the viewers cannot see this stunning necklace that you're wearing, which obviously is a creation of yours. Tell us a little bit about that. Thank you. Um, and, you know, talk us through it because, you know, how long did it take you to... To, to actually make that piece? This piece uh, did not take too, too long. Some of the pieces, like I have a piece right here that has taken quite a long time. That's why you're seeing it, Brian. It's not completed yet. It was supposed to be in this, this current exhibition, but it wasn't right. I want to get it right. I'm a Virgo, so I'm a perfectionist. So I really want to get this to my liking and it's all about balance and and proportion Uh, the piece I'm wearing here is made out of brass and copper the main center element is part of the inside of a pocket watch and again you'll see the steampunk movement in this piece but you'll also see very art deco very linear and a lot of geometric shapes and mostly in brass the watch part is in uh, stainless, and then I've got an element of copper through there. Again, the copper, if you notice, are kind of like little little bubbles, and it's, again, representing steam, representing movement, motion. Maybe some people, when they see this piece, they also think of locomotives type of thing, steam locomotives. Mm. So there's a lot going on. You know, people can interpret it however they want. This is my interpretation of my pieces. I was going to say, that's always one of the things about art, whether it's jewellery or a painting or a sculpture, is one can have one's interpretation of it, but the artist may have a completely different interpretation. Exactly. But I think that's... I think that's actually quite a nice thing in a way that, you know, we can all look at it and see something different in it. Yes. Um, somebody who had come to my opening reception and made a comment about a certain piece. And I, I looked at them and I said, you know, I, I really didn't think of that when I was creating it. So I love this feedback. I love to hear from people what they're seeing in my pieces that I might have missed. And a lot of times the pieces aren't, I don't do renderings of them. I do draw from time to time, but I just go with the pieces I have in front of me, and I just kind of put it all together. I find it kind of flows much nicely that way. Next question was going to be about your process, but you've sort of discussed it in a way. I mean, that's, is, is that an unusual process, do you feel? The way that you do it, it's, it's very sort of like on demand, as it were. You know, you're looking at it, you've you just come up with it rather than actually overly thinking about it, maybe. Right. Some pieces, as I said, come together very quickly. Other pieces are not that case at all. And I would rather set something aside 
until I get it right. But I do have thousands of pieces to work with. I've traveled to different places. I love to go to vintage markets and antique stores. And I was kind of brought up that way. My father loved collecting things. And every weekend we would be at an antique show or a flea market or tag sales. And when I think about it now, the things that I could have could have collected back then and used in my work now. But uh, if I had the hindsight, of course, but I didn't know I was going to be creating this, of course. And um, but I do like going all over, finding different unique pieces. And sometimes when you start talking to people, they know what your background is. They know that I wear my jewelry quite often and they see the jewelry. They love to engage and, and, and talk about it and ask a lot of questions, which is wonderful. They will lead me down the path. They'll say, oh, have you been to this antique market? Have you visited this store in New York? Have you done this? So people are very forthcoming and they, they like to share, which, which, is, which is great. I'm, I'm guessing you're a bit of a master with a soldering iron as well because uh, the way this yeah. stuff gets put together, I mean. Yes. Some things have to be what's called cold connections. When I purchase some, some pieces at one of the antique shops or flea markets or wherever I, I've, I find some things, I don't know sometimes what the metal actually is. If something is plated, if it will withstand heat, when I was working in sterling silver, the sterling silver can withstand heat. Gold can withstand tremendous heat, platinum, things like that. But the brass or copper, if there's something that maybe has a little bit of plating on it, it will, you know, I could destroy it with with regular acetylene torch. So I do what's called cold connections. Sometimes I drill very small holes. There's very small screws that you can't see that are connecting things. Things like the micro mosaics with the beads are actually inlaid in resin. So nothing's going to happen to that. It looks like glass, but it's actually uh, a resin that has to cure for three days, and it becomes very glass-like. And it's a self, what's called a self-doming resin, and that has a, a beautiful effect. It actually, if you use, um, pour the resin into a round, what would be called a bezel, then it's going to dome up, form a nice little dome, like a m- mushroom cap type of thing. So patience is the key. Absolutely. The it key sounds it like you're not just a jewelry designer, but a chemist as well with all yeah, of this well. stuff that you're <laughs> Some doing. Some days I feel like that. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about the exhibition, because like yes. we said, it's on until December the 11th. It's called Elements of Time Lost and Found the Jewelry of Anne Pedro. You must have been excited. I mean, I know you've done many, obviously, exhibitions, but, you know, it's currently at UConn. We'll be, as I say, at mm-hmm. the Home of Babbage uh, Library until around about the middle of December. But talk to us a little bit about it and how you got that together. Well, this exhibition was supposed to take place of course two years ago but we know the world stopped turning for us around two years ago a little over two years so I had to wait and then the other people who were going to have their exhibition before me I had to wait for them of course catch up and have their exhibitions so this one opened on August 26th And I'm really delighted to be here because it's not far from my home. And I know that a lot of people from all over the world who come to school here are are seeing the exhibition. I've gotten very good feedback. The work that I'm showing right now is from the last 10 years. Most of it 
is pieces that I've done for the last two years. But you will see some pieces. I did have an exhibition, a solo exhibition, 10 years ago. And that there are a few pieces that I've included in, in this show from there as well, too. But it, it shows a full range. I think you can really see, if you look at a piece in the show from 10 years ago, you could really see how the designs were a little bit more basic. They weren't as complicated. There were less items used in making a piece. Now I've, I've gotten really complicated, as you can see. So what I feel is complicated, but the whole key here is it is like putting a big jigsaw puzzle together and I've got all the elements and just trying to make it work, trying to make the design look good, trying to get the right colors to complement each other. It must be fascinating for you as well as an artist to look back and see how you've grown as well over that period. Like you said, some of the pieces a little bit more basic. And I know that the listeners can't see it, but the the things that we're looking at here, which you're working on, are incredibly complex from what I can see. I mean, there's multiple layers and, and various like smaller elements to it, larger elements. So that must be interesting for you to see how you have grown and changed. It is. Yes, it is very much. I'm happy with where I am right now. I want to progress more. I think every artist wants to. You don't want to go backwards. You always want to go forward. So I feel that that is what I'm doing. I wanted to do some even larger pieces, kind of like collars, that sort of thing. But time was marching on and I had to, I had to stop where I stopped. So I'm going to be continuing hopefully for the next exhibition. It is the type of jewellery, and I'm not just saying this because obviously we're doing the interview. It's I could almost see it on a science fiction television show or something. I mean, have you ever has anyone ever approached you for anything like that? Not because yet, it, but I hope they will, Brian. <laughs> I hope so too, because I mean, it is. I mean, you know, looking at some of it, it's almost got. And obviously, this isn't science fiction, but when you look back in history at some pictures of some of the Egyptian pharaohs and some of the the jewellery that they wore, there's almost sort of a similarity there but yours as I say is is different because of that steampunk look to it but Mm -hmm. it's just the look of it and the size of it Mm -hmm. I mean because these are not small pieces they are not small pieces but they are comfortable to wear again this is something that I have to come up with a balance so it's not and I I wear the one I have on right now probably seven days in a week I probably wear it five days out of the week because it is my favorite it's my signature piece and it's on my LinkedIn page as well that's what I use for a symbol I can certainly see why and we've only just scratched the surface but it's been an absolute joy talking to you and seeing some of the jewelry and obviously seeing the exhibition here and uh, we look forward to see where you go moving forward and let's hope that email or that telephone starts ringing from the TV people and uh, maybe we'll see some of your stuff actually where it should be seen as well not just in an exhibition but uh, for a bigger wider audience to see but in the meantime jewelry designer Anne Pedro thank you for being on the podcast thank you Brian it's been a pleasure and if you want to contact Anne to discuss her jewelry or what she might be able to do for you then you can find her on the social media platform LinkedIn and search for Anne M Pedro A-N-N-M-P-E-D-R-O accredited jewelry professional And don't forget to visit her exhibition at Yukon's Homer Babbage Library until December 11th and experience her unique creations. The possibility of lung cancer can be pretty scary, especially if you're one of approximately 8 million current or former smokers at high risk. 
That's why SaveByTheScan.org wants you to know that now there's a breakthrough low-dose CT scan that can detect lung cancer early, and it only takes 60 seconds. You stop smoking, now start screening. For an easy quiz to see if you're eligible, visit SaveByTheScan.org. It could save your life. SaveByTheScan.org is brought to you by the American Lung Association's Lung Force Initiative and the Ad Council. Got deer problems? Let us help. With Green Valley Tree LLC's Deer Preventive Spray, guaranteed to keep deer away from your precious plants, bushes, and trees for up to six months. With cold weather on its way, deer will be looking for sources of food. Don't let your front and backyards become their pantry. Call Green Valley Tree today at 860-234-4041 or visit us at greenvalleytreeworks.com. Time now for a look at other stories making the headlines this week. The November 8th midterm elections are finally behind us and Ned Lamont won his second term as governor of the state with his challenger Bob Stefanowski finally conceding just a day after the election with an email to the press. US Senator Richard Blumenthal was one of the first to call victory in the election race shortly after the polls closed, despite votes still being counted against his challenger Republican Leona Levy. In the second congressional district race, incumbent Joe Courtney had a strong win over his Republican opponent, Mike France, giving Courtney his ninth term in office. And voters across the state sent a clear message to the legislator they are now ready to consider early voting in Connecticut, and that could come as early as 2024. Connecticut is one of only four remaining states in the nation that doesn't have early voting. The latest innovation in ultrasound technology using microscopic bubbles to detect lesions or tumours in the body is now available in Connecticut and Rhode Island. L&M Hospitals in New London and Westerly can now provide the cutting-edge medical diagnostic service, which is still not widely available in the U.S. Dr. Louis Mazzarelli is the director of clinical ultrasound at LM, part of the Yale New Haven Health System, and says this new service is a game changer for both patients and medical professionals. Utilize special bubbles that go into the organs and allow us to see individual lesions, whether they be in the liver and kidney, things that we couldn't see ever before as well with ultrasound. And in many ways, it helps to solve problems. Things that we see on CT or MRI that we can't characterize further, patients can have an ultrasound, and that ultrasound with contrast, these special bubbles allows us to see these individual lesions better and more dynamically than we've been able to see them. And Mazzarelli says unlike CT or MRI scans, the ultrasound and bubbles can be used while a patient is actually undergoing surgery, giving a live view of inside the body and what needs to be treated. We can then use directed therapies, either with the ultrasound bubbles themselves or with tools like cold or hot to actually kill the tumors and then make sure that at the end of the procedure, that tumor is no longer seen to say that we've got a good response. Something that that type of in-procedure ability has not been available to medicine before. We're using it both on the diagnostic side when we diagnose these lesions, but also now on the treatment side. The bubbles are gas surrounded by a fatty shell and dissipate in the body without causing problems to a patient, especially if they have kidney problems where traditional contrast dyes end up and can cause issues. The new contrasting ultrasound is also mobile and allows for faster diagnosis at a patient's bedside in around 20 minutes, avoiding using expensive MRI scanners that can take upwards of an hour. A new study from Eastern Connecticut State University has found that treadmill desk use for remote home workers helps improve work performance. Dr. Jenna Sisko is an associate professor of psychological science at Eastern and an avid treadmill desk user herself. 
She said no research on the use of the devices had been done outside of an office or laboratory environment and she wanted to find out what the motivators and barriers were to people using them at home during the COVID pandemic. We also knew that sales of treadmill desks had maybe doubled or tripled during this time, depending on what reports you read. And so we thought, oh, this is so interesting. Why don't we interview people who use them at home? We know there are some benefits. We don't know if those benefits are the same at home. We also didn't know what are the barriers or motivators to like using a treadmill desk at home. If someone has one and they're not using it, how could we get them to use it? And so that's a future goal of ours. Cisco and her team interviewed 20 treadmill desk users and found that apart from the health benefits from the low-impact walking, users said they experienced better focus, improved creativity, improved mood, as well as less stress combined with a better work-life balance. And we found out that people were motivated by things like walking competitions, so they would try to see how many steps they could get and compete with a friend. Some barriers were really interesting, too. There were certain types of work that people didn't like to do on their treadmill, things where they had to do a lot of like detailed mouse work or writing, something that was cognitively difficult. But not all our participants agreed on that. Some said, oh, I love to write while I'm walking. So there do seem to be some individual differences in those barriers too. Cisco presented her study results at the annual conference of the Canadian Society for Psychomotor Learning and Sports Psychology in Montreal, Quebec, and said there was a lot of interest in her research from the international attendees. In the Chronicle this week, one of the most familiar faces in the town of Hebron is leaving her municipal duties to focus on different initiatives, some global and some very close to home. Town clerk Carla Pomprowitz announced in October that she is retiring, effective end of January 2023. She has served in the position since the start of the 21st century and helped bring the office and its archives into the new technological era. Most years, she was not only re-elected without any opponents, but was also cross-endorsed by both of the town's major political parties. That's all from us for this edition. Do send us your questions and story ideas to the show via our website at Connecticut-East.com or Facebook or Twitter at Connecticut East and on Instagram at Connecticut East this week. And you can listen to the show again on our social platforms on demand and by asking your smart speaker to play Connecticut East This Week podcast. And please like, follow and share on your social media too. I'm Brian Scott-Smith. Thank you for listening.